the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec and now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion Podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Why does the Sicilian Mafia, one of the most ruthlessly amoral organisations in the history of mankind, feel such affection for the pious traditions of popular Italian Catholicism? And why does the Catholic Church, not just in Sicily, but in the Vatican and elsewhere, find it so hard to disentangle itself from organised crime? These are questions addressed, obliquely but thrillingly, in a new thriller, The Chemist of Catania, by Alexander Lucy Smith. Listeners to this podcast know him as a moral theologian and a very hard-working Catholic priest in the Diocese of Arundel and Brighton, but he's also an extremely ingenious novelist. To quote none other than A.N. Wilson, I review a lot of crime novels and they very seldom come up to the level of Alexander Lucy Smith's riveting Sicilian stories. He paints the landscapes and townscapes of Catania with brightness. The plots are fast, the characters unforgettable. Menace, suspense, lust, love, fear, all enliven his narrative. I can see him becoming a real cult author, as well as translating with ease to the silver screen. Clearly, Wilson has read some of the sequels to The Chemist of Catania, which have already been written, but so far only The Chemist is available, and I do urge you to go out and buy it. It's available on Amazon. I snapped it up and couldn't put it down. And here he is to discuss the Mafia, the Catholic Church, and the deeply troubling and embarrassing relationship between them. Father Alexander Lucy Smith, your brilliant novel, which I couldn't put down, really couldn't put down, tells a somewhat depressing, if very exciting, story about a society in the grip of poverty, organised crime, and served by a church which is really rather sort of philosophical and helpless, even when well-meaning about the existence of this organised crime, and to an extent is in its grips, because the protagonist of the story is a young man who becomes very quickly corrupted by the Mafia, although it's a long time before he can aspire to actually join their ranks. But when he does, it's through connections with a pious association, a very wealthy association of the faithful in Catania, and the local parish priest, who's an entirely pious and well-meaning man, can't really do anything about it because it's a system that exists, and a system that has existed for centuries, and the local population seems more interested in celebrating local feasts in an overtly rather old-fashioned superstitious way than it does in the moral probity of its pastor. Is that a fair description? I think it is a fair description, actually, because in Sicily, one of the things about Sicily is that um, they often have quite a lot of um, feasts. 
And there was recently a scandal some years ago, Cicely, about how they would process these statues around the quarter and they would stop outside the house of a mafia boss who was under house arrest, who couldn't come to church. And the statue would make uninquino, would bow its head. They would sort of tip the statue forward in front of the mafia boss's house. And this is something they do to people who are very special in society and also to major donors to the feast. So yes, this did happen. And of course, it goes right back to the 1950s, where people in Sicily thought they had a choice. This was I, a statue of the Virgin Mary. I had a statue of the Virgin Mary or Saint Sebastian or something. So the, the Virgin Mary herself is. Yeah, it's sort of paying her respects paying to the mafia. Paying her respects to the mafia. Yeah, goodness yeah. me. Um, back in the 50s, there was thought to be a binary choice in Sicily either the mafia or the communists. The Mafia hate the Communists, the Communists hate the Mafia, therefore we choose the Mafia, or we tolerate the Mafia, because that's the price we pay to keeping out the Communists. And of course, the binary choice was in fact in the voting booth, it was between the Communists and the Christian Democrats, but the Christian Democrats were in with the Mafia, and that seems to be beyond dispute nowadays. Of course, the Mafia don't tell us these things, the Christian Democrats don't tell us these things, but Sicily was dominated by the Christian Democrats for a very, very long time. The only other politician in Italy who's had complete control over Sicily was Silvio Berlusconi. He won every seat in Sicily. And people immediately jumped to the wrong the conclusion that he was in league with the Mafia. Do you think that there's something about the opaque, often dishonest, secretive structures of the church, structural power in the church, that the Mafia find easy to do business with? Yes. One of the things you've got to understand about the Mafia, and which is clear in my book, I think, uh, which incidentally is called The Chemist of Catania, available only on, uh, on Amazon, uh, one of the things you've got to understand is the, the, the Mafiosi are exceptionally conservative. They're also superstitious. They also claim to be religious, but they're not really religious. They love the outward show of religion, but the actual adherence to God, I don't think, is there. Uh, they're very traditional, and therefore the church is something they really like. They themselves don't go to Mass that often. They might stand outside the church and smoke during the Mass, but they'd make sure their women and their children went to Mass. Uh, but actually, this cynicism, lack of religious belief, intense interest in self-advancement, is something that is actually found among ordained members of the clergy, even in the curia itself. I remember a friend of mine once saying many years ago that there are many priests who are in fact lapsed Catholics. And I was quite shocked by that. And I remember a great friend of mine said to me the other day, they said, you know, you do all these things, you say mass and you do all the things you do as a priest, but you don't believe it, do you? And I said, yes, of course I believe it. I believe every single word. And I remember once I was with my sister-in-law in Italy, she's an Italian, and we were discussing, you know, a matter dear to our hearts, namely devotion to St. Rita of Kasha. And my brother looked up from the table and he just, he looked at us both very curiously and he said, you don't believe this rubbish, do you? And we both said, yes, we do. We believe it. We utterly believe it. You know, I actually am a true believer. I'm um, pleased to hear yeah, it. Yeah, I know, I am a true really? believer. I'm a fervent believer. Whether I actually 
were um, act out by Catholicism real life is another thing. But in my heart, I'm truly Catholic. It must be rather distressing to see, to see the deposit of faith being watered down in such chaotic fashion by the rather mafia-like synod on synodality. Uh, Sorry well, to drag that. Yeah, but, but I mean, there have been... Um, very high-ranking clergy who have been in league with the Mafia. There seems to be no doubt about that. The thing about it is, of course, these very high-ranking clergy who are in league with the Mafia, um, it's impossible to prove. And that is the ultimate defence the Mafia has. It's impossible to prove. They don't leave a trail of evidence. Now, you know that story about Cardinal Giordano, who was um, the Cardinal of Naples back in uh, the 1980s. He was put on trial for his collusion with the Mafia. And he was acquitted. And when that, I naturally said, well, that shows, doesn't it, that Cardinal Giordano had nothing to do with the Mafia. He was found innocent. But everybody in Italy said, ah, now we know Cardinal Giordano really was a mafioso because he was able to suppress all the evidence and get off. And the real mafiosi never get sent down. It's only the poor, you know, um, fools who uh, don't have friends in high places and aren't protected, aren't important people who get sent down. Now, just as the Mafia is specifically a Sicilian thing, one should make the point that lots of organised crime in Italy is not, strictly speaking, Mafia, yeah, but very mafiosi in, yeah. in, in the way it's organised, it, it partakes of the same culture yes, as yes, it was. Yes. And many of the church's dealings with organised crime which I think continue to flourish, there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest they continue to flourish, wouldn't specifically be with the Mafia, but they would be with the old unreformed Italy, as it were, the old way of doing things, massive, blatant corruption of the type that has inspired the current massive fraud trial being carried out in yeah. the Vatican, in which Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the Pope's former chief of staff, and a number of other defendants face... Yeah extremely serious charges which they deny but would you agree with me that the culture of money laundering and embezzlement seems to have survived any attempts to reform it Um, it seems that way doesn't it the mafia is of course a sicilian organization the most important crime group in italy is the indrangheta which has cornered the market in cocaine that's a calabrian operation the camorra which is in naples It's not that successful anymore because it cornered the market in um, illegal cigarettes from the Balkans and so So they rather missed out. Virtually all the cocaine in Europe is coming through a port called Gioia Tauro in containers in, in Calabria and also coming through Antwerp and so places like that. But the Indrangheta now has its tentacles all over Germany and places like that and even France. Now, if you look at Cardinal Becciu, he isn't great newspaper copy. First of all, he's from Sardinia. Sardinia was, when it comes to crime, the capital of kidnapping in um, Italy. Sardinia is a very poor part of the world. Um, It was largely uh, full of shepherds. It was a place where you kept sheep. And you did a bit of kidnapping on the side, brigandage, because the centre of Sardinia was completely lawless. Now, Betchou comes from Sardinia. Sardinia is very interesting. And a lot of people, British people, don't know this. The Italian politicians of the Christian Democrat Party and the Communist Party, the Sardinians, were hugely over 
overrepresented in that in after the war. So, um, president Senyi was a Sardinian. Cosiga, President Cosiga was a Sardinian. Also, Enrico Berlinguer, the head of the Communist Party, oh, yes, was a Sardinian. Um, the younger Senyi is a Sardinian. Lots and lots of Sardinians in Italian politics. And of course, um, Becciu, as a Sardinian, has a certain whiff about him, it has to be said. The other thing about Becciu is that he has this sidekick called Cecilia Maronia, who's also a Sardinian. As soon as you're an, an Italian knows about that, um, bells begin to ring. You know, this is a Sardinian sort of plot. And there's also that other person, uh, the nephew, was also in the Becciu case. So you have nepotism and you have this Cecilia Maronia who is La Dama del Cardinale. And he is also accused of channeling money to his brother. To yes, the brother, brother and the nephew. Yes. And he ch uh, supposedly channeled half a million euros to Cecilia Maronia via her fake company in Slovenia, which she claimed she was using for extra diplomatic activities in Africa and the Arab world. But she said there are no invoices because this is all secret work and so on and so forth. And but of course there is a massive property development in London in which the Vatican was ludicrously and very, very heavily involved. Yes. That... Um, um, and a certain amount of money laundering associated with that. None of this is denied because the Vatican is actually trying Cardinal Becci for this. He mm. says he's being set up and um, that the Pope actually knew about this all along. Yeah. But nonetheless, it does suggest that a culture of corruption, the unreformed Italy, mm. survives in the Vatican, perhaps to a greater extent than in other parts of Italy yes. or in other parts of Rome, for yes, example. Yes. They do say that you know if you want old-style Roman corruption, then you need to step inside yeah. the Vatican. Um, Andrew Brown, who writes for The Guardian, said oh, in yes. the Vatican they insist on the Italian way of doing things and even in Italy they've abandoned the Italian way of doing things. The, the other thing about the, this thing, number 60 Sloan Avenue, which the Vatican bought, the Vatican didn't, act, it's, it's so complicated, the Vatican didn't actually buy it. They used a shell a company yes. and then another company inside the company and so on. It's so a forth. bit like the Schleswig-Holstein question. Yeah, yeah, it's yes. all baseball. And that is, of course, the perfect defence, isn't it? Oh, it wasn't me, it was the other person, it was the other person and so on. And the, but, and also, it means that people don't really pick up on this scandal very much because it's too hard to understand. They just toss it aside. But the Cecilia Maronia thing, the La Dama del Cardinale, that's really good news for newspapers and those who love to discuss Vatican scandals. Because, you know, he was siphoning off this 500,000 euros to his lady friend, who, of course, and she says, we were just good friends, etc., etc. There was nothing going on. And I'm an international woman of mystery doing secret operations for the Vatican in Africa and so on and so forth. And obviously there are no receipts for anything. And as for that luxury handbag I spent some of the money on, that was a a present for the wife of a very important Nigerian. And, of course, he was being set up. I mean, the, the excuses are really very funny, I have to say. What I find very funny is that when Cardinal Petri was, was appointed to that particular job, he was hailed as a reformer yes. by Christopher Lamb oh, of the Tablet. Oh, yeah. I can point you to the article, uh -huh, yeah. simply because Cardinal Petri was an enemy of the late Cardinal Pell. He certainly was. Who told me on more than one occasion that he was um, 
he knew what Betu was up to. Yeah. But then later felt, in fact he wrote this in the, in the memo, the anonymous memo, mm. it was published just after he died, that Betu was being denied justice because the Pope had changed the rules mm. of the trial. It's a Vatican mm. trial, not, a, not an Italian trial, mm. um, in a way that actually denied Betu proper representation mm. and made absolutely sure and the verdict would go the right way. Now, we don't know no. about that. But now, one of the things I find exceptionally strange about the whole Betru scandal is Betru, when he was an archbishop, he was the sostituto in the Secretary of State. Which is really chief of staff. Yes, which is yeah. a very important yeah. person. Then what happened is he was kicked upstairs to be head of the dicastery for the causes of saints. That's right. And then he was made a cardinal. Then he was made a cardinal. And this is very, very interesting, as you say, because by that stage, it was perfectly clear that there were question marks about Betru's honesty. The the CDF, as it then was, was already investigating him. And the Pope made him a cardinal, which is an extraordinary thing to do. Now, it's all very well to say he was being kicked upstairs, mm. because he was, in a way, he was in a much less powerful mm. position. But nonetheless, he was getting what every clergyman wants, yeah. which is a red hat. Yeah. The usual answer to why was he made a cardinal is, again, it's speculation. But one of the great things about Italy is, even though this case is ongoing in Italy, you're allowed to speculate completely freely in Italy, whereas in England it's all sub judice you wouldn't be able to talk about it. But in Italy, they don't talk about anything else. He was made a cardinal to shut him up because he knew where the bodies were buried. And now we see a very strong parallel with the other famous cardinal, Cardinal Sodano, who was never sacked and who had a... Again, he had a nephew, although he didn't have una dama, um, and he had endless, very dodgy business deals going, around, going on around him. He went on until he was over 90. He was never sacked because he knew too much. He knew, to use that lovely phrase that the newspapers always love to use, he knew where the bodies were buried. And he was, of course, Secretary of State yes, he was. for St. John Paul II. So yes. it's worth remembering that this culture of corruption is certainly not something that... Pope Francis brought with him. Nonetheless, I remember saying quite a few years ago that the only impact that the appointment of Pope Francis would have on Italian cultural corruption or Vatican cultural corruption would be to give it a Latin American flavour. And I stick to that. Mm. There are a number of people over whom there are very serious question marks. And they have, at some point, either been protected by the Pope or are still in favour with the Pope Mm-hmm. and they're from Latin America, yeah. and their, their CVs don't bear close examination. Let's not go into too many details, but nonetheless, are you thinking, it's pretty scandalous. Are you thinking of Cardinal Maradiaga, the Archbishop Yes, yes I am thinking of Cardinal Maradiaga. It, it's fair to say it's a matter of record. Yeah. It's been reported in the British press that he's been accused, accused of embezzlement of large sums of money, yeah. has denied it, um, the Pope was supposed to be investigating it, but didn't, and Mariaga stayed on in, in high favour until he reached the age of 80 and stepped down from the Pope's inner circle of advisers. Now, this is, this is the sort of thing that could be slotted into one of your brilliant thrillers. <laughs> Quite easily, yeah. couldn't it? Well, I'm, the first volume of my brilliant thriller, as you call it, is done. It's just going to be a series, and in the second volume, um, a female banker appears who is laundering money for the mafia via charitable accounts and who's a really close friend of the cardinal of um, Palermo. 
So, um, and one of the things, of course, about this is that if you want to launder money, which is a big thing if you're making money through drugs, using the Catholic Church is a very good way of going about it because, first of all, the Vatican Bank is offshore and, secondly, um, it involves international payments to South America and places like that, Asia and so on and so forth. It goes around. So, so for example, somebody gives you a million pounds in cash as a charitable donation to a hospital in Brazil, off it goes to Brazil, except in, and then it comes straight back, if you see what I mean, maybe shedding 10,000 euros on the way. So. It's surprising, given the opportunities for criminal activity, that the Vatican is actually so broke. It's messed things up so badly. Its investments are terrible. Um, one of the things you could say, possibly, in the defence of many of these um, seemingly dishonest cardinals is that they are the, they've been taken for a ride. I mean, the, the, the late Cardinal Giordano said um, they noticed a lot of money was going through his account and he said, all I was doing was helping my family. I was just giving my brother loans and things like that. Which, of course, in Italy, when you say, I was just helping my family, that is um, something people would say, oh, yeah, well, great guy. Having a cardinal in the family is a wonderful way of sprucing up, cleaning, purifying your reputation. You know, if you're a rather dodgy businessman, but your uncle is a cardinal, everybody will do business with you. You know, it's, that's very important. However, I must say this about Bechu. Cardinal Bechu, um, you would expect, you know, a lever to be pulled, a trapdoor to open, and there to be a lot of um, activity in the piranha pool, but that hasn't happened. Bechu was sacked as a cardinal, which was almost unheard of, after only two years as a cardinal. Then he was sort of quasi-rehabilitated. Yeah. And then uh, the Pope said, oh, I think Bechu's in a or something like that. And then you had all these... The other thing is, Bechu talks to the Pope regularly on the telephone and even records the, the conversation in one or two things. Uh, and so it's very, very curious this sort of cat and mouse game with Bechu. Is Bechu a villain who's been cast out into outer darkness or has he been rehabilitated? It, 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 it keeps on changing. And I think it's almost as if they want us to be kept on edge and to be kept guessing. I think that's it. Is Bechu a goodie or is Bechu a baddie? We're, we're kept guessing. We're not allowed to say he's one or the other. Or rather perhaps two baddies involved. Well, La Dama del Cardinal, the woman of the Cardinal, she does seem a bit That's strange. Not true, I mean. Oh, right, you meant somebody else. Yes, I know. There's also Monsignor, well, for example, Monsignor Perlasca, who is this Monsignor who's been greatly involved with events from the beginning, who's turned Pope's evidence, also, it seems. So, he, is it possible that Bechu is also going to turn Pope's evidence and reveal the villainy of other people around him? After all, Bechu has said that he has been framed. Well, who's framing him and why? Maybe that's going to come out. We don't know. I mean, maybe lots more heads are going to roll. I don't know. It's very hard to understand this. And even the obfuscation and the confusion, I think that's political as well. Because one of the great things about democracies, I know the church isn't a democracy, they're supposed to be transparent, aren't they? The Vatican's not at all transparent. I think the cultural mendacity of the Vatican is actually worse than it's ever been. It's not so much mendacity, it's rather what I remember from when I was um, a lad in Rome myself as a student. You don't need to know. You don't have a right to know. Shut up. Don't ask questions. We're the ones in charge. It's, it's up to us, not you.
The idea of accountability is the key word. There's no accountability. There's never been a culture of accountability in Italy. There might be now, but there certainly never has been in the Vatican. So, going back to Sicily, as Italy becomes more secular, presumably the Catholic trappings, or some of the Catholic trappings of the Mafia will fall away, but it doesn't look as if the grip of organised crime is loosening on that part of the world. It's quite extraordinary what's happening in, in Sicily, even if I, I follow Sicilian news rather closely as part of way of researching my books. One of the things that's most astonishing about Sicilian news and Sicilian crime is, first of all, cocaine, cocaine, cocaine. That is the number one thing. Everything is paid for with the money that comes from the cocaine trade. If you could stop the cocaine trade, you'd kill the mafia. There's no doubt about that. Now, you can stop the cocaine trade very easily. You can legalise it, regulate it and tax it, and the mafia will be out of business tomorrow. But no politician has the gumption or the courage to do that. The other thing that's really interesting about the mafia and is the degradation of children. You become a mafioso, you start to become a mafioso from your earliest years. By the time you're 14, you are well on the way to being a mafioso. Um, I recently came across a character called Turidu Capello, who was a boss in Catania. His, he came to the notice of the mafia um, at the age of 14 when he stole the pectoral cross off the Bishop of Trapani. And I say off the Bishop of Trapani. The Bishop of Trapani was wearing it at the time. This 14-year-old boy stole a jewelled cross off the, which was hanging around the neck of the Bishop of Trapani. And as a result, the Mafia then took him up. And by the time he was 32, he was sentenced to life and he hasn't been seen since. But he had a glorious career from the ages of 14 to 32. And people will do this because of the social degradation of Sicily, the poverty of Sicily. And I mean, it's a cliche and it's cruel and it's not true, but there is an element of truth in Sicily is so completely third world. And presumably becoming more so with yes. uncon that uncontrolled immigration that the Holy Father seems to think is such a good idea. Well, I think, yes, because that's one of the things I will discuss I'm going to. I'm writing about in further novels um, because the uncontrolled immigration is also under the control of the mafia, possibly. But a lot of the uncontrolled immigration is through Sicily, through Italy, into Germany and also other countries. They don't stop in Sicily, but some of them do stop in Sicily. The human trafficking, which is what it is, is another mafia industry along with cocaine trafficking. And all these sordid dramas are being played out against a backdrop of. Some of the most beautiful churches in Italy, if not the world. Yes, absolutely. And, I mean, you know, if you go to Catania, which um, is not particularly famous in the British tour, tourists or the pantheon, Catania is one, is one of the most beautiful places on earth. And you have all this going on with that backdrop. And, of course, don't forget, Catania is the home of St Agatha, the 12-year-old girl who was martyred by the, the Romans, who had the most awful tortures done to her, but was so true to Christ that she died aged 12, virgin and martyr. And John Paul II, when he went to Catania years ago, said, oh, people of Catania, you must live up to the inheritance you have received, which is, you know, you must be like St. Agatha. In other words, um, people who adhere very strongly to the truth and who don't make compromises, I think is what he meant. There are too many compromises. 
And the greatest compromise is this idea that, well, it's bad, but then what can we do about it? It's always been the case, there's nothing we can do. Whereas that great priest, Don Pino Pugliesi, he said, what if somebody were to do something? It was his catchphrase in his sermons. What if somebody were to do something? And he was, um, he did a lot of youth work with teenage boys um, to try and get them away from the Mafia influence, and of course he was shot dead on the steps of his church, and he's now buried in uh, the cathedral in uh, Palermo. He is now the blessed Father Pino Pugliese. He was a great, great, great guy. But unfortunately, he was just one priest among many, and most of us are, are terrible cowards, aren't we? I mean, I don't think I have the, the guts to be like Don Pino Pugliese. My point about all oh, this is happening against the backdrop of the most exquisite church yes, architecture. Yes, yes, I just, yeah. you know, I just, yes, just looking at the pictures, you think, how could such squalor exist amid such beauty? Uh, the, the, that is the south of Italy for you. I mean, one of the most squalid and the most beautiful places on earth is obviously Naples, isn't it? And Naples has always had this culture of enormous poverty and enormous idleness, enormous unemployment. Idleness and unemployment, disoccupazione, is what they call it in Italy, lack of occupation. Um, and that's very, very, very much the thing in Naples and also in places like Palermo. In a big city, there's nothing to do. You just sit around and so on and so forth. Hence, of course, the other great thing that you've got in Naples and in Palermo and so on is prostitution and uh, pickpocketing as well. Those, those would be, you know, two of the possible jobs you could So how do they end up with such exquisite churches? One of the reasons for that is a historical reason. In the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, which uh, sadly ceased to exist in 1862, um, something like 12% uh, of the population was a priest or a nun or a friar or a religious brother. As a result, they all deeded churches to, to pray in and to live in and so on and so forth. So there were huge endowments of, of beautiful churches and endless sodalities, uh, confraternities and religious orders, which was to give people something to do. Organised idleness, the Protestants would call it, wouldn't they? But what's happening to these churches now that mass attendance is collapsing and apart from anything else, the ancient liturgy is suppressed with particular ruthlessness in Italy? Um, what's going to happen to this church? One of the things is that um, every church I've ever been in, well, actually, you're right, in Catania, for example, at the top of the hill, there's this vast um, Via dei Crociferi, there's this vast Jesuit church, which is completely unused. And it's basically just used for concerts and things like that. Right at the top of the hill by the university is a vast Benedictine church, which is one of the biggest in Italy, and that's a, a white elephant as well. But um, there's still a lot of religiosity in Sicily. Maybe not religion, but there is religiosity. So, for example, I don't know if you know this, but one of the biggest movement of people on the planet isn't the Hajj in Mecca. It's the Feast of St. Agatha in Catania. Something like you know, a million people or two million people turn up for that in February and the streets are packed. I mean, if you just go online and look at the Feast of St. Agatha Catania, it's astonishing what happens. And one of the things you find is, of course, all these people who um, are there um, in the streets um, shouting, Viva Sant'Agata, a very few of them may actually go to church. That's, that's the, the thing. But they God, they love Sant'Agata. You know the famous thing that an Italian says, two, two famous things Italians say, Io sono cattolico. 
ma la mia mamma è una fanatica va in chiesa ogni, sa- ogni domenica I'm a Catholic ma my mother she's a fanatic she goes to mass every Sunday and the other thing Italians say is Dio non mi piace I don't like God ma sua mamma sì but his blessed mother I like her and if you want to understand Italian religion which I it came to me in a flash I was outside the Communist Party as it then was headquarters in Rome It is this modern building and in the, in the centre of Rome. And you go next door to it, this little building, with a picture of the Madonna. One of these tiny pictures of the Madonna with a sort of decoration around it, covered in ex-votos. And I thought, poor communists, you're never going to get over that. You might fight God, but you'll never fight the Madonna. The Italians love the Madonna. And God did not say, you know, I mean, but the, 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 the communism, Stalinism, it really did fail in Italy, didn't it? Uh, compared to the, the gut religiosity of the people. Now, what's going to happen in the end of my long saga? Are they going to repent, these mafiosi? I think they might. I don't have made up my mind. But one of the key things is this, that the Italians talk about. We talk about mafia turncoats, and they've had a bit of success with people who've come out of the mafia and dobbed in their former colleagues. These are called, in Italian, i pentiti, the repentant ones. In other words, that's a religious word they're using for it. The ones who have been converted, the ones who have said, mi pento, mi dolgo, con tutto il mio cuore. I repent, I am so sorry, with all my heart, that I have offended you. You know, as you, you know that prayer, don't you? The act of contrition. These are the guys who've made the act of contrition, gone to confession and found redemption. So one of the great things about Sicily is and even Cardinal Becciu and Cardinal Giordano, Cardinal Soldano, and all these very dodgy cardinals and so on, is repentance is always possible. And, you know, they may come out the other end as reformed characters. And if you're a Catholic, and you know this, Damien, there's one thing we love more than anything else, and that is a repentant sinner. Alexander, thank you very much.